Our Father, as we come to the closing chapters of the uh, book of Acts tonight and think about the emergence of the church, we ask your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the foundation of the church and its difference from Israel, the unique features that you've blessed the church with, and the uh, superintending sovereignty and sovereign grace that you've shown uh, to protect that founding of the church through Paul. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, tonight we are finishing up the uh, narration through Acts and uh, going on to the uh, doctrinal side of things. If you keep in mind that diagram, page 71, figure 4, that step, and notice how the uh, as, as you go through the book of Acts, it becomes less Israel-centered, more church-centered. And, of course, Paul is a leading um, feature of this movement. And so we, we kind of covered everything last week quickly, but I want to go back and uh, review a, a certain theme here. And in so doing, I'm going to stop at a chapter that's not in the notes, but I think this chapter in the book of Acts will become very useful for you, as it has for me over the years, in giving a neat, easy-to-picture story that gets sovereignty and human responsibility together. So, um, first, just a few words about the theme as you get toward the end of Acts. Jesus said in Acts 1.8 that the church should be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the world. Now, that is not just a forecast, that is an announcement of what surely will happen. And we have not been an exegetical class in the book of Acts, so we haven't gone through all the little details. But had we done so, you would see over and over again in the book of Acts how the church did not initiate obedient following out of Acts 1.8. That's not the theme of Acts. And so when you hear people say, oh, we've got to get back to the first century church, now you can kind of think, well, not really. Um, what you see in the book of Acts is not the church initiating its mission function. What you see is God working in history to bring out the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. The initiative lies with God, not with man. The initiative doesn't lie with superior church leadership. It doesn't lie with the fact that they had all their doctrine together. Didn't, didn't have that either. It, 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 the whole thing, the whole fulfillment of Acts 1.8 is due to God's sovereign working in history. <clears throat> and we said in Acts 21, Paul almost gets killed here. And the people who rescue him, ironically, from the religious crowd are the Roman soldiers. <clears throat> looked down upon by the Jews. So, the fact that Luke is writing this history, Luke-Acts, two-volume history, and he's recording these kind of events, particularly events that would antagonize Jews, you have to come back and say, okay, what's the big picture here? Why does he seemingly try to set up a situation in his history, his two-volume text here, Something that, gosh, you know, it just it ruptures any kind of a relationship with the Jewish community. 
And it's not like he's trying to do this. It's just that this is the way history played out. So in Acts 21, you almost have Paul killed. But because God's will is that he go to Rome, he is going to go to Rome. Now in between Acts 21 and 28, there's another chapter in there, a very famous chapter. And I want to spend some time on it tonight as a sort of a, uh, just a kind of a break from the rest of what we've been going through in Acts because this is a neat story and over the years, like I said, I have used this story so many times in straightening out my head about sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, the story involves a shipwreck, Paul's shipwreck. And Paul is, is, in, is on his way to Rome for his trial, which he has as a Roman citizen demanded and which the Roman uh, soldiers now have to imprison him and bring him to Rome. And it's not shown on this map, but he, he left here on a boat. He comes across to Crete. And uh, to the west of this map, this is Greece here, so to the west of it is Italy. You don't see Italy on this map, you just see Crete. Um, Paul's going to go by this place, and they're going to have a very bad storm. So in Acts 27, if you'll turn there, we want to go through this because it's an example, excellent, excellent example of sovereignty and, and human responsibility. And since it's in a physical context, most people find this easier to grasp because it's not, you don't have salvation issues at stake here, spiritual issues. And so it's a straightforward catastrophe, a, a, a thing that would strike the front page of the newspaper, that kind of an event. So verse 1 starts out. This is the setting for the narrative. And in the first three verses, we have introduced where, when, and who, and the main people. When it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of Augustine's band, Augustus's band. Now, several points to look at in verse 1. You'll notice... It's a plural first pronoun. We. We. Who's the we? Luke and Paul. So clearly, Luke is accompanying him on this. So now, Luke is operating not on the basis of a research historian, but as a historian who was there, on-scene reporter. When it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners. That was they, theirs, the Romans. Romans that were in, in uh, Israel, and they gave him over to this guy, Julius. Now, Julius is a special envoy. It says in verse 1, and historians have noticed, next time you hear some sloppy Joe talking about how the Bible has mistakes in it and we can't trust it and all the rest of the stuff, um, yes, you can. And two of the clearest books that have authenticated themselves in the eyes of historians is Luke's work. And it's little details like verse 1, 2, and 3 that Luke shines because it is it, it, where scholars have been able to check, for example, on Augustus' band, Augustus' band, where they have checked this all out against extra-biblical materials. It turns out that Luke, by golly, that guy knew what he was writing. Now just fancy that. We are 20 centuries later, and we have to acknowledge that Luke, who was there, really, really reported something. Wow, big accomplishment. 
And we, 20 centuries later, that know everything, nobody knew anything before we came along, of course, and we have decided that Luke understood things as they really were. Well, Augustus's band, as mentioned at the end of verse 27, had a function in the Roman hierarchy. This group was an elite group of officials, and they, in their function, apparently operated much as our federal marshals operate. They were in charge of moving prisoners back and forth in the empire, and, also, and being sure that particularly they came to trial in Rome. Uh, so, again, notice that in Acts, Luke is careful to mention details like this. Remember back in, in Cornelius in Acts 10? He not only says Cornelius was a centurion, he says he was a centurion in what? The Italian cohort. Now he's talking about Julius, and he says and he is a centurion in Julius' band. See what I mean by these details? That's Mark's Luke as a historian who knows what he's talking about. He's placing Christianity in the bureaucracy of the ancient world, fixing where it is. And he describes in verse 2, they entered a ship, we launched, we meant to sail by the coast of Asia, which is Turkey, Asia Minor. And the next day we touched at Sidon, which is going up the coast here now, up to Sidon, which is now in Lebanon. And... Um, Julius courteously entreated Paul, gave him liberty to go to his friends to refresh himself. So it's an amicable relationship going on here. And Luke is careful to point this out. See, after Acts 21, when you had that ferocious Jewish religious mob who tried to kill Paul, notice the extra pains that Luke goes into showing how accommodating the Romans were. You don't lose sight of that. That's important. That tells you something about things are shifting here in the book of Acts. And it says, When we launched from Thans, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. We sailed over to the Sea of Cilicia, Pamphylia, and came to Myra. So he's going over on this route. It's an east-west route going south of what the island of Cyprus. And... Um, Verse 6, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria heading into Italy. It's another point by Luke's language here. He correctly reflects the fact that there were the main big boats, and this is going to be a big one that Paul gets on now, move out of Egypt, there's Egypt, and they're shipping grain across the Mediterranean. And sometimes they'll go up and visit some of these places. But the grain shipments came out of Egypt and went across here. And these guys, they're big freight vessels. They're t tankers of their time. And so it shows you the little boat launched in verse 2. That was more or less a, a, a sort of a little, little yacht thing, coastal shuttle. And now they get on the big boat. Well, in verse 9... We, uh, Paul's upset because of the delay. This is in the fall of the year. And verse 9, when much time was spent, when sailing was now dangerous, and Luke is again correct, uh, Jedius mentions that the transition season for sailing in the Mediterranean occurred between September 14th and November 11th. That's when the shippers realized that you start planting vessels after that, you've got a problem. Winter storms come into the Mediterranean here. 
and they can, even though this body of water isn't an ocean, you can get some really vicious, vicious storms there. So, Luke is correct. This is a bad time to make the trip. And he kept saying, Paul admonished them. Paul, now, a, a thing to notice about this story is here we have a picture of the Apostle Paul, the leading proponent of the Christian faith, and how he acted toward pagans in the street context. Notice he didn't buttonhole them all the time. You don't recall him. In fact, you don't even have him here uh, telling about the gospel. Uh, he's carrying on normal conversation. He's, he's establishing social contact. And here's a model for, for a guy doing this. But he did, in verse 9, Paul admonished them, and he was saying to them, meaning he said this several times. It wasn't just one announcement. He says, Sirs, I believe that this voyage will be with hurt and much danger, not only of the lading on the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner. Now, that's the setting of the story. So Paul doesn't have credibility with the centurion at this point. So watch what happens. Here's the centurion. He's got to make a decision. He's got a prisoner. He can't sit him around. He wants to get him over here to, to, to Italy before the winter gets really set. So he's got a problem. He's basically like a federal marshal. He's got to move a prisoner from point A to point B. So he wants to get Paul over here and get the mission over with so he doesn't get messed up out here in the Mediterranean in the wintertime. So verse 12 says they didn't really have a place to winter in, so they tried to go to a place on Crete, on the, on the, on the west end of it. And verse 13, when the south wind blew lightly, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they loosed and, and sailed close by Crete. But not long after there, there rose a tempestuous wind. And so here they are in the middle of a vicious storm. And obviously, from what they, you see in verse 17, they lost control of this big boat. Now, to give you an idea of how big this boat is, if you look at down ahead, um, all the way down into... Let's see, where is it? Where oh, he says how many people. And verse 37. If you look down at verse 37, you'll see that there's quite a few people aboard this thing. Uh, like it says, they were 203 score, so there's 200 plus 60 plus 16. So there's 276 people aboard this boat. This isn't a rowboat out here. This is a large vessel with 276 people with all the dining facility, the food facilities, the lodging facilities, plus a whole load of grain. So, big boat here. Why is it a big boat? because it's a freight line that runs between Alexandria and Rome. That's why it's, it's shipping grain back and forth. So this is not a small little boat here. So we got a big problem because it's this big boat in verse 17. When they take them, they used helps undergirding the ship. Uh, the, the picture there is that they actually took cables and threw it under the hull to make the hull hold against the wave power. So this boat's in problems. You can imagine, this boat isn't weak. This boat's used to transport grain. So to hold the hull together in the middle of the storm, they're using cables underneath the hull. And um, 
we were being driven, and we, we being exceedingly tossed to the tempest, the next day they start lightening the ship. So now, because they're taking aboard water and so on, they're going to start jettisoning cargo. Well, when the guy who's the captain of a, this large a vessel starts jettisoning cargo, you know what else he's jettisoning? Money. So he's got a, and this, this is a major problem. And verse 20 describes the problem. The third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. Now they're tossing their tools aboard, overboard. So when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, no small tempest lay upon us. All hope that we should be saved was being taken away. Now watch Luke here. The hope was being taken away. What hope? This is not hope of eternal life. This is hope just physically to survive an accident that's about to happen. Normal living. And, of course, we all know as Christians, when hope is taken away, that usually is some sort of a circumstance God's putting into our lives to make us look up. So we have to not be knocked flat on our back to look up. We, you know, we all know that problem. So here we get a stress situation, a high-stress situation. Now, watch what happens to Paul. Very interesting. Now, here's where you want to be sharp. Look carefully at the text, because you're going to see an interplay here now between a sovereign pronouncement and human response to the sovereign pronouncement, and then the outcome. After long as Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Now there you have a believer. He's not the number one command aboard the ship. But nevertheless, he's an articulate proponent of wisdom. And he's not afraid to stand up and say it. And he says it respectfully, but he says it truthfully and firmly. And I think this is an interesting way he does it in verse 21. He, he disagrees with the leadership. He's submissive to the leadership, but he doesn't, he doesn't just collapse and turn into a doormat either. He, he, there's a time to voice disagreement. And it can be done gracefully. Not, don't be nasty. He's not nasty in here. He's not um, disrespectful in the way he says it. But he had said, I told you we shouldn't do this. We've gone wrong way. We made a wrong decision. Now I exhort you to be of good cheer. For there shall be no loss, watch this, there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but only a loss of the ship. So now in the sovereignty of God, and he's going to say, an angel told me so. We don't know how that was taken by the centurion. No comment from Luke. But here's the sovereignty of God. The people... 276 are going to be saved. The boat is going to be lost. So let's see how that works out. And watch the interaction. Paul says in verse 23, There stood by me this night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. So there he is testifies to who God is. Notice he hasn't got into any details of the gospel, but like he does in Acts 17, like he does in Acts 14, he clarifies the nature of who God is. And this is important. A secular Western civilization can hardly anymore think of the biblical God. 
and if you ask me, this is what is making Western civilization vulnerable to Islam. Chuck Colson was on the other night, and he was just pointing out how fastest growing religion in America is Islam after September 11th. Now, why is that? Well, one of the things why is because Muslims have a very clear doctrine. They're not afraid. By the way, he also pointed out another neat thing, and that was that they don't see, have seeker-friendly churches either. They don't have welcome mats out in front of the mosque. They don't have basketball teams uh, and, and all the rest of it. Now, this is nothing wrong with basketball teams. Good youth activity. Gets rid of energy. But the point is that the Muslims don't approach people on a sort of a friendship type thing. They lay it all out in the front. There is no God but Allah. Period. Don't like it? Leave. And that's the approach. But you know, some pe people appreciate that because they can trust you if you are blunt and truthful and tell them where it is. And there are a lot of people in our culture who have had mealy-mouthed presentations of the gospel, who have gone over to the cults, have heard this, who have heard the secular message, and everything is relative, and, and the soul is made for certainty. God wants us to be sure. And Islam comes up and says, this is it. Remember what I said over the years here in the framework course. Every heresy is like a parasite. It feeds on a weakness in the church. When we see other religions displacing Christianity, you better check because the church is doing something wrong. And the other people are a scourge from God, just like the Babylonians was a scourge to Israel. You people don't put the light in the candle, and I'm going to take your candle out. And that's the book of Revelation. It's part of God's discipline upon us when we don't get it together. And we have all this other stuff happening. Well, so Paul, in verse 23, publicly says this. Didn't ask the permission of the American, uh, what's it, ACLU or something. Didn't ask an attorney what he should say, be politically correct. He announced it. And he didn't argue the point here. I mean, it is an argument in a way, but it's a presuppositional approach. He stood by me and says, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. And it's in his name that I'm telling you these things. So, listen or leave, you know. Saying, fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. Now, see the, see the link here isn't just the 276 people in the boat. The reason for the salvation of the people is that Paul must go to Rome. See, that's the theme. Paul to Rome. There's the heart. And what is that a reflection of? It's part of the Acts 1-8 program, sovereign program of God. Because the church is going to be a witness to all the world. How is the church going to be a witness to all the world? Because Paul is going to get to Rome, and from Rome, he is going to then spread Christianity. So, and historically, that's what happened. So, Paul has got to get to Rome. That's an expression of Acts 1 8. Acts 1 8 is an expression of the sovereignty of God, and because Paul happens to be on a boat with 276 people, it's grace for them. 
because they are going to be blessed along with the fact that Paul is not going to lose his life. They're not going to lose their life. So the issue, by phrasing it, verse 24, the way it's phrased, relates it to Acts 1.8. That's part of the Luke's theme. Fear not, you must be brought before Caesar. God has given, perfect tense, God has given you all them that sail with you. That's a past tense. So now Paul says, the angel has told me that, that at this point, past tense, these people have been given to me, that is, they are identified with Paul, and God is going to be sovereignly gracious to Paul because they're in the same umbrella with Paul, same boat, 276 people, uh, 275 people plus Paul are going to be saved. And that was decreed by God. Nothing's going to change it, and it's the sovereign expression of God. He has given you all them that sail with you. Therefore, sir, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it has been told to me. So he's witnessing here to pagans, but he's witnessing at a very elementary level. He's not getting right to the cross. He's simply introducing who God is, that God is sovereign, God is omnipotent, God is overall powerful, and therefore he can do these things and so on and so forth. And I trust that, and I live my life in accordance with that principle. So by simply articulating the principle he's done in verse 25, he's created the, the contrast between them. However, we must be cast upon a certain island. And then he stops talking, and 27, verse 27 continues the narrative. When the 14th day was come, notice how long this went on. The third day is in verse 19. So now this is 14 days. So here we go, 11 days later. So a week and a half later, verse 27, they were driven up and down in Adria. About midnight, the shipmen deemed they drew near to some country. They sounded. They're taking uh, depth measurements. See, they weren't stupid people. These people were businessmen, great sailors, had technical tools of navigation. And here it's equivalent to our depth finder, except it was a thing with a weight on the end of it, and they reeled it out and measured how deep the water was. They're at night. They haven't got any visibility. So what they're using is maps. And they're figuring out, okay, if we keep dropping this rope with a weight and we take, reel it up and we measure it, and then an hour later we drop it down and we measure it, and it's getting less, we don't, you know, we're coming to land here somewhere. So, so this is the way they navigated at night when they couldn't see what was going on. And fearing lest we should have fallen upon the rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and they, began, they kept on wishing for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship when they had let down the boat into the sea under cover as though they would cast anchors out. Now there's a little scheme. In verse 30, remind you of the Titanic. In verse 30, these guys see an opportunity to save themselves and they're going to use the lifeboat to do it. And the heck with the other 200 and some odd people aboard. Well, Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, now watch this, here is an address to human choice. Now, what have we just got through saying? So, under God's sovereignty, 276 people are going to be saved. That can't be changed because God said it. But then, what do you have here? And this is where, this has always helped me get this together in my head. In verse 31, Paul said to the centurion, except these abide in the ship, you all, 275 people, cannot be saved. 
So now we have number two. First, number one, which is an expression of God's sovereignty. Now we have human responsibility. And men are responsible to stay in the boat. And if they don't stay in the boat, they're going to be lost. Which would then collide with the first principle that Todd said, no one's going to be lost. So now let's think, what does this do? What does this do? Got to be careful here. However you look at verse 31... What you can't say is that, gee, if these people rebel and try to go overboard, then sovereignty goes away. Well, we know sovereignty isn't going to go away. God's character isn't going to change. This one has to, this statement has to always remain true no matter what they do. Well, yes, it does, and yes, no, it doesn't. Sovereignty, when sovereignty decrees something, we have the, a fatalistic view. Let's draw some points on a line here. Point one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay? At point one, announcement is made about condition at point six. Okay? So. What you have to be careful of when you think of the sovereignty of God is that when God says that point six out here is going to take place, what you can't do in your head is do this number. You can't eliminate points two, three, four, five. Just because God is only addressing point six. Because if you do that, you get into a fatalism where it doesn't matter what happens at point two, three, four, and five. That would be like saying, I had a vision and I'm not going to die before I reach 80. So you starve yourself to death. Well, you have to eat three times a day. So eating is part of the action for the sovereign fulfillment. So when God sovereignly announces something like point six, he implicitly is saying there's a pathway to go from point one to point six. And you're responsible to follow it. So here's point one, the vision on the boat. Point six is everybody's going to be saved. But the fact that God has sovereignly guaranteed six means backing up that certain things have to take place. And it's proper to consider the things that take place to be by human choice. But it's a choice that has already been included in the plan of God. Because God could not have made the first statement, could he? If he hadn't have already, within that sovereign statement, seen that the people, after all, would stay in the boat. But notice in verse 20, 30, 31, 32, 33, that in these four verses, look at the number of times they almost don't stay in the boat. And look at the number of actions that people have to do in order to keep the people on the boat. For example, in verse 30. That was the first attempt. The guys tried to take off with an with emergency boat. 
And what did Paul do? Paul said to the centurion, except these guys stay in the boat, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. It's these great Roman soldiers, boy, you know, they get an order, they just do it. You want to cut off? Okay, pop. There goes the, there goes the whole lifeboat. That's what the centurion said. Cut it. So we cut it. And see, the order of these guys, amazing fellas. And third, verse 33, while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take food. This day is the 14th day that you've tarried and continued fasting. You've taken nothing. I pray that you take some food, for this is for your health. For there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And verse 35, notice what he does. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And I would imagine he ended his prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without apologizing for it in public. And when so forth, and when he had broken, he began to eat. And they were all of good cheer because they had taken some food. Now, why is Paul giving them food here? Because these guys are going to have to jump in the water finally when they get close to land, and they need strength. So Paul's taking care of them. See, this is God's grace. And he's using normal, everyday means to do so. But you can see that they don't get all saved. They all, everything turns out in the end that God was right. 276 people get saved. But they got saved because they stayed in the boat. And the fact that they stayed in the boat was because the centurion had the moxie to respond to Paul when Paul saw that you've got to get these guys. Don't get them off here now. They're going to drown. In a storm, the finest swimmers can become fatigued so fast they can drown just like that. The, the movie, the, um, Perfect Storm, was an example where the rescue paramedics that were dropped from the Coast Guard helicopter into that water, they drowned. Two of those guys drowned. And they were top swimmers. But when the waves are 30 or 40 feet in the North Atlantic, doesn't make, the Atlantic doesn't care whether you're a good swimmer or a bad swimmer. Waves kill you anyway. And when we were sending military into Grenada a number of years ago, because of a foul up with the weather, C-130 was dropping a crew down, dropped some um, SEAL team, great guys, powerfully equipped. I mean, these guys can swim miles. Dropped them out in the middle of a thunderstorm. They all drowned. Great way to take the airport. Whole whole group of guys, the commandos that were in the lead plane, they all drowned. So that's why we didn't get to the airport. That's how another team got shot up. So examples of what happens when you get in these situations. So there's no small thing that happens here when in verse 30, that thing happens. Verse 31, Paul immediately intervenes. Now, if he had been thinking fatalistically, he would have said, oh, that doesn't make any difference. The guys go out in a boat. God said 276 people will be saved. No sweat, no problem. But this story, if you will read it through carefully, will help you see how with a non-salvation narrative like this passage, talking about a simple, easily visualizable accident, will help you see that God uses means to get to his sovereign ends. Now, what is the application for missionary work and evangelism? God says, I'm going to build my church. 
God says, I'm going to call out X number of people, and when we get finally to the magic number, the body of Christ will be finished. And that's going to happen. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against that. Now, does that mean, therefore, that the church can just lie back and say, well, God sovereignly decreed it, no problem. Or when he, we hear him say he's, that's going to happen, it's going to happen because other people are going to get out there and be the means for doing it. Just like Paul was the means of saving that crew. Had Paul not spoken up in verse 31, this could never have taken place. And the fact that God sovereignly chose it tells you that that included, the sovereign decree includes human responses. How that happens beats me. And nobody else has figured it out. It's just that this, this um, narrative is a neat example to go back a time and time again. Go back to Acts 27 and run it through your head again. Run it through it over and over and pretend you're in the sea, pretend you're on the boat, visualize it in your head. Imagine yourself part of participating in this accident. And it'll help you see, because that imagery will come over to other problems in life. Because all problems in life can be looked upon as a storm. <clears throat> so, when you notice what happens, verse 37, is the, the census occurs. There's, the, there's the, all the 276 people. And then it says, when they had eaten enough, they kept lightening the ship, cast out the weed into the sea. Now they've thrown overboard the cargo. They've thrown over their tools. They've thrown over a lot of other stuff on, on deck. Now they're tossing out the, the cargo, trying to get the hull light. So if they've got to ground the thing, it'll at least go up the beach a little bit and won't be totally stuck out in the water. And when they'd taken up anchors, they committed themselves under the sea, loosened the rudder bands. And then in verse 41 that they run aground. And the back part of the boat, obviously it was a rocky area with a lot of waves. The wave action totally destroyed the boat, verse 41. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners. So here comes the next crisis that happens. Well, if the soldiers had killed the prisoners, there wouldn't be 276 survivors now, would there? So see, the story is laced with oh, almost, God saying 276 people are going to be saved, but almost, the guys get out the back, the stern of the boat with a, with a safety boat. And then we have the food issue. These people are not going to be able to get out if they don't have strength. And now we have the last thing. The soldiers say, hey, you know, if we crash, these guys get out. We're the marshals. We're in charge of these prisoners. And that's all we have to do is come back with, with, to Rome without the prisoners. That's going to look great. That really helps with promotion. So, what they decide to do is they're going to take care of the problem. They just kill the prisoners. So, verse 43, no, they're not going to kill. If they kill the prisoners in verse 42, who else is going to get killed? Paul's going to get killed. And then what happens to the fact that Paul's going to go to Rome? Then God's sovereign decree goes down the tubes. So, even though the soldiers try to do this, and Paul at this point isn't the one who intervenes. It was Paul who intervened in verse 31. It was Paul who intervened about the food in verse 35. But Paul could not intervene verse 42. So who intervened in verse 42? It was the commander. 
Julius, in verse 43. Centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, commanded they should, uh, that they which could swim should cast themselves first in the sea and get to land, the rest on boards, broken pieces. This good officer, he had a crisis, he figured out how to solve the crisis, and he gave explicit instructions to different kinds of people to do different things, and they'd be okay. Good leader here. And they escaped all safe to land. Notice how Luke ends chapter 27. They escaped all safe to land. So this little drama of the shipwreck, wonderful, wonderful story of God's sovereignty. In chapter 28 now, which is the end of the book of Acts, we covered last week, but there's one thing we did not cover last week, and that is, remember, they come to see Paul, and they're Jews, and they can't make up their mind. Verse 24, some were believing the things which were spoken, and some did not believe. See, there's the double-minded man in the Jewish civilization of the time. And they didn't agree among themselves. Paul could not get a consensus from the nation Israel over the issue of the gospel. Now, Paul, in verse 26 and 27, quotes from the Old Testament. But the quote that he quotes from the Old Testament, you'll hold the place and turn to Matthew 13, you'll see it was used before. So let's turn over to Matthew 13, verse 14. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. Who is the speaker in Matthew 13? It's Jesus. And at that point, at that point in his ministry, to study the Gospels halfway through the ministry, Jesus begins to be, uh, begins to be clear that Jesus is not going to be accepted as the Messiah of the nation. And so in response to that rejection, Jesus says, And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, Seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest that they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. That goes back to the thing we studied back years ago when you're dealing with the decline of the kingdom in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah's day, 586. So, at this point... In Jesus' career, he's being rejected, and he explains the rejection in terms of Old Testament prophecy associated with the exile. Now you come forward to Acts 28, and what does it say? Same quote. Now isn't that interesting? Why do you suppose Luke took it upon himself to write and tell us about Paul saying this passage? What had happened? The gospel had been rejected. And so Paul is going to use the same passage from Isaiah that Jesus used when Jesus tried to preach the gospel and he was rejected. And so in the grand scheme of things, at the end of the book of Acts, we have the second invitation to Israel. First invitation was Jesus. The second invitation has been going on and on and on throughout the whole book of Acts. And finally, it, the nation says no. And this fulfills that parable that we've gone through several times in Matthew 22. The king set out to invite the people to the wedding feast, remember? Didn't come. 
So he sent a second wave out, and they killed those people. That's Book of Acts. So, same wedding, same king, same call, same response. Remember, two. The Bible always goes by twos. There are two witnesses in the tribulation. In the Joseph stories, there are always two dreams. The rejection, Jesus and Paul, two rejections. Why is there always two? This theme comes up again and again in Scripture. Why? Because the mouth of two or three witnesses, an act, is confirmed. It's just part of the way God demonstrates to us truthfulness. He corroborates the evidence by duplicating it. So we see now in Acts 28, where he concludes, verse 28 of 28, Therefore, that salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And we last time, we went through the significance of the gospel coming to Europe and the fulfillment of Japheth and so on. Now, if you'll turn in your notes to page 72 that was handed out tonight, I want to introduce what we're going to do in the next week, the next two times we meet. We're going to go over the work that the rest of the Trinity does for us as believers. Now, the first, uh, the second chapter, we dealt with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we said, did regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, sealing, plus the Spirit intercedes for us, plus He distributes spiritual gifts. Hey, we, could, we could go on with more. I'm just taking six. Now, what we're going to do in the next section is we're going to deal with the Son and we're going to deal with the Father. And each of these are going to have six. So when we get done, we're going to have 18 blessings that are common to all Christians in all centuries and all cultures and all tongues everywhere and always throughout church history. And these are blessings of God that do not depend on circumstances, do not depend on what other people think about you, do not depend on whether you're in a country that's poor or a country that's rich, does not depend on what language you are, does not depend upon your race. It depends upon whether or not you are in the body of Christ. So here are 18 different works that we're going to study. Now, we've already studied the first six as the Holy Spirit. But as we do these, we want to also do something else. We want to tie these clusters in as they are related to each other because we're dealing here with a triune monotheism. One God, but three in his person. How that happens, the equal ultimacy of one and three, we don't know. We studied six of his works, regeneration, and that was the image of creation. You can think in your head. I try to give you images so you can think in pictures. Regeneration is just a recreation. It's creating something new in our souls, new, a new human spirit. Indwelling. What's the image there? The image is that of a temple. So think of a temple. Think of the, the glory of God in the Old Testament that occupied a temple. And you have the picture, Holy Spirit indwelling a believer. Baptism. <clears throat> Baptism was the image of separation. The baptism of Noah was the flood. There was a separation between the people that got drowned and the people that were on the boat. Uh, there's the baptism of the Red Sea, baptism of Moses. We studied some of those non-popular, unknown baptisms. 
the image of separation. Ceiling, that's the fourth thing, R-I-B-S, ribs. And the S in ribs is ceiling. It's the image of a security seal in a document, to know that that document can't be touched without messing with a seal. And then we said, is intercession for us? And you remember, we went through Romans 8, and we noted the particular important thing about this intercession of the Holy Spirit for us is that the intercession is directed not at the first person of the Trinity, but at the second person. And that's kind of noteworthy, because that usually is not the case. So we know immediately then that because the intercession of the Holy Spirit is directed to the Son, that what we probably are seeing here is how the body works, the body of Christ. The head, Christ, in heaven now, is connected to the rest of his body that's on earth. And the connection link between them is the Holy Spirit doing this calm thing. And we said, remember, that it, he speaks with groanings that cannot be uttered. And it's not meaning he's got some oogie spooky way of talking. It's just that it's encrypted. In modern day vocabulary, the Holy Spirit carries on an encrypted conversation with the Son. Now, why is he encrypting it? Well, we're in a spiritual warfare. Who is it that's listening to the calm lines? Who would love to know what God's next step is going to be in your life, my life, and the church's life? Who's out there to jam it? Well, Satan is. So therefore, this takes the initiative away from Satan because if the Holy Spirit's praying for me, for you, for somebody else, he's talking to the Lord, the head. We're located as cells in his body. And he says, okay, this person needs a little straightening out here. And I suggest we do this. Well, that's a private communication because that concerns God. It's none of Satan's business. And Satan will try to react to it, but he doesn't have the initiative. So this is a very clever and very um, encouraging thing that the Holy Spirit does. And then he also gives spiritual gifts. Every Christian has a place in the body and has a gift of ministry of some sort. There's no, no, there's no spectators in the body of Christ. Um, you may be a spectator for a while while you're learning, but sooner or later God's going to thrust you in a position just like he did the early church. The church, the guys that stayed in Jerusalem, oh, I can't do this and we can't do that. Well, they found out that, yeah, well, after they persecute us in Jerusalem, you better find out. You better get a motel down in Samaria and start thinking about moving your business because it isn't going to flourish around Jerusalem. So they were thrust out into a position where they were forced to be engaged in some sort of ministry. And that's going to happen to all of us. May happen in personal conversation. May happen in an encouragement word that you are placed next to somebody who's suffering or something, and you can offer exhortation. You can lead them to the Lord. The different things that are involved. So those are the things the Holy Spirit does. Now what we want to do is connect those with the next six. And if you look at second and third paragraph, I want to go through this with you and explain why I said what I said. We're going to reverse the usual order. We move from the third person back to the second person and then back to the first person. Six works each of the Son and the Father will be listed. These twelve works will be added to the previous six of the Holy Spirit. They reveal much of the church's position. Now, next paragraph. It is well to remember 
an aspect of the Trinity to help put these 18 blessings into a coherent whole. The words that the triune God chose to use in Scripture direct us to think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of a speaker, his message, and the effects of the message. Now just think of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Holy Spirit was fluttering on the surface. And God said, and immediately something happened. So the picture there is just treat it simple. Don't worry about the physics, the cosmology. Just think of the simple words. And what does it say? God, God is there. He creates heavens and the earth. The Holy Spirit is ready. He's moving. He's ready. God says, let there be light. And there was light. Now there's three things happen. God speaks. So he has a plan. He has a plan to make light. He articulates that plan and reveals that plan in a speech. And he says, let there be light. And after he says the word, the Spirit creates it. And it happens. And that's always the sequence. That's why in John chapter 1, it's built off of Genesis 1, John says, in the beginning was God and so forth, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by Him all things were made that were made. Where's where he getting that idea from? Genesis. Well, wait, I didn't see Logos in Genesis. Yes, you did. There's a verb form there. God said. God said, what do you say? You don't say, ooh, you say words. So, God said, God spoke. So, if you'll keep in mind the Trinity here, and think of this, and I'll go one more sentence here in this paragraph. Speaker, message, and effect. The work of the Spirit, which we studied in the previous chapter, centers upon the effect of establishing the church on earth among men. Believers in this life have a recreated human spirit, a residency of the Holy Spirit inside them, a spiritual identification, a communications link, a position of ministry. Now the work of the Son. Next paragraph. Following out the biblical guidance, we can think of the work of the Son as centering upon content and meaning of the church and God's eternal plan. So whereas the Holy Spirit, all these ribs things, these are things that we experience on earth. They're results of the Holy Spirit creating and setting up the church in history. But the six things that we're going to start studying now about the Son, the work of the Son, they're real things too, just as real as the ribs, but there's an emphasis here upon the things the Son is doing form the core of the meaning of why the church exists in the first place. Then when we advance back to the Father, the first person, the six things we're going to study with him point out the fact that causation is personal. There is a personal cause to history. Somebody has to be a speaker, and it's not a gas cloud. It's not a differential equation. It's not an electrical field. It's not the dark force in the nucleus. It's something that is a person. It's not some things, it's someone. So the person who causes things is a person. 
That separates us people as Bible believers from the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world, apart from those who have been influenced by the Bible, don't believe that. Ultimately, the rest of the world believes that the universe is just there, even ancient pagans, the world is just there, and inside this impersonal thing, there are some gods, men, animals, rocks, and fire, water, and whatever else you want to add into the thing. But the thing itself isn't personal. The thing itself is just this chaos of environment. So therefore, in that situation, if I believe that, what's my ultimate cause of all things? It can't be the gods, because the gods are all finite and they're all squabbling among themselves. So where do you get cause from? What's the cause of all things? Usually it's one of two things. Fate or chance. Fate or chance. That's, be, that's the only other option here. The Bible says it's not fate or chance, it's somebody who speaks. That whatever has taken place has been thought by a person and spoken by a person, and that person is God the Father. All things come from Him. So there's no such thing as an impersonal cause. Everything is personally caused. So the six things we're going to study there have emphasis on the fact that we have a personal cause in our lives and in the universe. The Son gives, gives us the center. This reveals meaning and purpose. And the Holy Spirit makes it all happen in history. So these things, R-I-B-S, intercession and spiritual gifts, are the outworking of what God has spoken. So we're going to back up from them now, and next week we're going to start in with the things the Son has done for us. And when we look at those things, yeah, they're just as real as ribs, but these things form the content of what God's doing. They express God's will. Ribs, regeneration, and dwelling baptism are the historical... Um, things that have been brought into existence because of this plan that God has. Well, what's the plan that sets all these up? That's what we're going to study. And if you look ahead, you'll see the first thing, page 72, is imputed righteousness. And it, please read that and look the verses up because that is something we study a little bit with the call of Abraham and justification. But the trick in imputed righteousness is we've got to define what we mean by righteousness and justice. And then on page 73, the next thing is the death and resurrection. And that's our co... The, the people often talk, you'll hear devotional texts talk about co-crucifixion with Christ and co-resurrection with Christ. Those of you who've been, you know, you've seen baptisms, water baptisms, dead with Christ, rise to water, the, what baptism shows. Well, there's the death and resurrection points to a certain key meaning in all of reality. It's a translation from a mortal existence to an immortal existence and thereby reveals the ultimate will of God for his creatures. So these are powerful things that take the Christian life and move it on a plane that is just incomprehensible. 
and puts it on a plane far above any of the self-help courses and all the other psychological, sociological babble that goes on and elevates us to a position that honors the Lord and uh, shows what kind of God it is we worship. Father, we thank you tonight for the work that you have done in establishing the church. And we thank you even for this disaster that beset Paul that century after century by telling the story of Acts 27 that the church has been able to understand a little bit more about how you are so powerful and sovereign and yet in your sovereignty you, you form the basis and don't negate human responsibility. And we know not how to put all this together, but we thank you for these illustrations because they give us boundaries. They give us um, the overall picture to keep us straight, keep us stable, keep us balanced. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we'll go in early and get out earlier. Um, Ted, who comes to class, uh, just handed me an email that was passed around, uh, apparently, among some Christians. And it's kind of interesting uh, encouragement. It's from a commentary by Cal Thomas. Uh, Cal Thomas is kind of an acerbic, conservative, evangelical Christian. Have you ever seen him? He spoke up here at the, the, our, the Christian school uh, one evening. And um, talk about a guy that can just take words and wrap them around an opponent. He's sort of a, the, uh, a roughened version of Bill Buckley. Um, very astute on his feet. But anyway, here's, here's what Cal Thomas said, uh, and, and he brought up John Ashcroft. So this is kind of a neat little encouragement. People are always asking me if there are good leaders in Washington. There are. There are quite a few, but you don't often hear about them because many of them aren't engaging in scandalous or self-serving activities. One such good person is Attorney General John Ashcroft. I had the pleasure of interviewing him again this week for a column I'm writing. During the interview, Ashcroft said something so profound, I wanted to share it with you. Listen, this is good. This is the Attorney General of the United States government speaking here. Now listen to this. This is so good. Islam is a religion in which God requires you to send your son to die for him. Christianity is a faith in which God sends his son to die for you. Attorney General of the United States. Isn't that encouraging? That's encouraging. That's right. Well, you know, in this uh, rise of Islam in our country, of course, it's taken over Great Britain. Um, Britain was at one time the ones that really the, the country that spawned the whole missionary movement. Now, most of the missions in almost every continent, if you look at their history, came out of Britain. And then America started taking over a lot of the missionary work. But the sad thing was the Church of England just so compromised doctrine, so turned away from the Word of God. And people who have been there tell me that you can go down the street now and look at these wonderful historic Christian buildings. And you know who's in them now? Muslims. Um, just falling left and right. Dozens of them. And it's because 
there's a total theological vacuum out there. And people want certainty. And Islam gives them that certainty. So we're watching it take place in this country. But the encouragement is that, of course, Islam doesn't, doesn't um, fill the human heart. And one of the most successful um, mission movements to Islam, we had a missionary over at our house last week, and she was telling us this, that Campus Crusade got uh, some Egyptian actors and actresses to depict biblical stories, but do so from within an Arabic context, Arabic speaking. So they made all these tapes up, and then they decided, well, now let's see, how can we get these tapes? How can we get the Arabs themselves to want the tape? Well, it turns out that the Arabs, there's quite a bit of traffic back and forth between Spain and North Africa. And there's ferry boats that run back and forth because on holidays and so on, the, some of the, the Muslims by the thousands go up to, you know, go up to the continent, and see the scenery, buy stuff and so on. And they come back and they wait for the ferries to come pick up the cars. So Crusade thought of, ah, what we'll do is we'll just, because you have to be careful how you witness to, to the Muslims, because it's a big riot. So what they did is they would uh, pass out these cassettes, because everybody has a cassette player in their car, and they're sitting there waiting for the ferry. Hey, So they're selling these cassettes out, and the Arabs, yeah, I'll have those. And they stick them in there, and they like them because they're Bible stories. And, you know, the Koran gives at least lip service to the Old Testament. And so here these people are by the thousands, getting these tapes that aren't openly evangelistic yet, but they're sowing the seed. And they're successful at doing this. And it's one of the most successful uh, making inroads into there because it addresses the human heart, which we know can never be fulfilled and never experience fullness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, good example. But I had to share that with you. I thought that was such a wonderful statement that somebody that high up in our office could make such an, in two sentences, could make such an astute comparison. So, anyway, any questions so far, what we're working on? We've gone through the separation of the church. Hope you're seeing now that the church is something new. The church is a different origin, different destiny, different character than Israel. And that's why you have to be careful and how you handle the New Testament epistles and how you deal with the Old Testament law. That it's not the same thing. Yes? Yeah, good, good, uh, good, Donna. Uh, yeah, good illustration.
is comforting, it brings peace. I might not be using it in the right definition that you used it. But to know that God is going to do point six, no matter what I have to get through to get to point six, right. uh, there's peace just saying. Who cares what happens between one and yeah. two? As long as, yeah, it's done in the right spirit. Right. As long yeah. as I'm still connected to the Lord and seeing where I need to be moving in those points. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a helpful. By fatalism, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be thankful for point six in the thing. I'm just saying that you want to be careful that point six isn't totally disconnected from the pathway. Now, the way to think of it so that you can say, I'm thankful that this is going to take place regardless of what I do. What you really mean by regardless of what I do is the things where we, we know we're going to sin, we're never going to be perfectly obedient, um, we know that we're going to face things for which we, we have no control whatsoever. I mean, we, we just can't control the details in our lives. So that's refreshing to know that, yeah, point six is already determined which and work backward. Yeah, but where Paul could do something, he did, and where he couldn't do something, he didn't. But it all worked out, and uh, it's just a, a very, I think, one of the clearest places in the Bible where all of the elements are in one story. Now you can get this by other places in the Bible, but you've got to kind of connect stories. Like you've got to connect Joseph to Isaac to Abraham, and you get you see, it's there too. Finally, you get down to Joseph, and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There's an example of sovereignty, but it's, you know, over three generations. So it takes a little longer stretch of your imagination to capture it in your head. But the shipwreck story is easy to think, and it's a one-chapter story. It doesn't go on and on. So, yeah, that's a good example. And, and the storm is a wonderful illustration because it, it, it's a metaphor of trouble. It's a metaphor of problems. Yeah. Um, in my quiet time this morning, I was going through Psalm 84, and it, I'm just looking back over it, and in verse 5 it says, um, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage or the highways to heaven, as they're passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, and they go from strength to strength, each appears before God and Zion. And you just see, you know, we're heading on home. We're, we're on a pilgrimage. What song is that? Psalm 84. And it says, we're, we're going to be passing through the valley of weeping. Psalm 84. What verse? Verse 5. And it, and it encourages us. It says, we go from strength to strength till each appears before God. We're going to get Mm-hmm. And when there's a process of sanctification, we go from strength to strength. But we're already seeing in verse 5, blessed are those who strength is in you. Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, yeah, Psalm 84, 1 to 7. The destiny of heaven is 
Another psalm that, now that you mentioned Psalm 84, you know another psalm, I don't know um, if you've ever thought of this, but it's one of the most popular psalms. It's not as popular as Psalm 23, but I'm sure you've all um, heard this psalm. Um, but I wonder if you've ever thought about the background of it. Turn to Psalm 121. It's something, a very familiar one, and I'm sure the moment your eyes light on the text, you'll recognize it, because it's quoted so often in Christian circles. Uh, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keeps thee will not slumber. He that keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee, so forth. The King James translates this in such a way that it misses some of the verb tenses of the Hebrew. And uh, because at the time the King James was translated, I guess they didn't consult uh, rabbis too well on who would have been experts in the language. But Psalm 121, if you look under the title, Psalm 121, you'll see it says the Song of Degrees. If you look at Psalm 120, you'll see it says the Song of Degrees. This whole section of the Book of Psalms is thought by scholars to be a collection of prayer songs that Jewish families would pray on their travels to come to the city of Jerusalem. Because you remember Jews had to come to the city of Jerusalem three times a year. Well. We don't think of this often, but now you hear stories in Afghanistan of the food guys trying to bring food in. They get kidnapped and uh, get shot, and get you have highway people, robbers in a in a no man's land. We can't appreciate the security we have. Oh, I think we're appreciating it more. But uh, there are places on Earth where you can't you take your life in your hands and just travel between town and town. And so Psalm 121 is one of those traveler psalms. And it has to be read in the light of a traveler's mercy, needing help to go on a, on a journey. So the idea, if you read it that way in Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up my eyes into the hills. And now King James says, from whence comes my help, as though the guy is saying, oh, the hills, my help comes from the hills. That's not really the meaning of this. The idea is, I lift up my eyes into the hills. What is a traveler looking at the hills for? The guy, that's where the hideout, the bad guys are. So, what the meaning of verse 1 is, I lift up my eyes, I'm lifting up my eyes, I'm going on this trip, and I'm seeing these hills, and I'm, I'm concerned, where's my help going to come from? It's a question. I see the danger, I see the threat. Where is my help going to come from? And what's so nice about these psalms is, the psalms teach us hundreds of illustrations of how Old Testament saints worked in their head. The Psalms reveal their thought life. And if you see this, this is taking you through, step by step, how to think about trouble. And it gives you an insight as to how these Old Testament saints who faced as much trouble as we do, they worked their way through it until finally they could rest in the promise of God. So think of this psalm this way. I'm, I'm lifting up my eyes to the hills. I've got anxiety over threats to my safety. Now where's my help going to come from? The answer, and notice how he answers. 
He thinks, my help is going to come from the Lord, and it's not just any Lord. It's the Lord who made heaven and earth and the hills and everybody else. So he goes back to a big view of God. He gets back to the framework. When we studied the framework, what was the first event in the framework? Remember what we said? Creation. And what do we say was the one event in the whole framework that defined the nature of God? Creation. So here it is again. Framework. So here are the guy's working in his soul and he's incorporating this framework approach by saying my help comes from the Lord and I define who I mean by God in terms of who made heaven and earth. Now, the, uh, there's a dialogue in this song. So there's a, there's, a, there's a second person besides the soliloquy of verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 3, it's a prayer that is like a, another person or a priest maybe blessing him. And he says, may your foot not suffer. May he that keeps thee not slumber. So it's, it's, the, it's the positive desire that God not do that. It's, it's a priestly prayer, sort of. So, verse 3 can be looked upon as a prayer petition. May not your, your foot be moved, and may the one who keeps you, and it's a participle, may the one who constantly keeps you, uh, may he not slumber. Because, obviously, when do people slumber? At night. When is the traveler in most danger? At night. Behold, he that keeps Israel, he won't slumber or sleep. And so it's not just the individual Jewish traveler, but it's he that keeps the whole nation of Jews. He that keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And the Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. See, that's daytime travel. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. And then verse 7 and 8 are sort of another prayer. It's not the Lord shall, but it's may the Lord preserve thee from all evil. May he preserve thy soul. May the Lord preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth. Thy going out and thy coming in isn't going in and out of a house. That's going on the trip to Jerusalem back. So, so there's an example of Psalm, like Psalm 84. And what's so nice, it tells you the anxiety. Frankly, these people were anxious, just like we are. But they were able to get through the anxiety over to a point where they could trust. And just watch how they thinking. They were disciplined thinkers. 99% of our problem lies inside our own head. Only 1% of it's outside. It's how we handle the problem up here. And it's a battle. It is a battle all the time. And that's why doctrine of the, from the scripture is so important. You cannot go on the Christian life on basis of how you felt yesterday afternoon because right now, how you felt yesterday afternoon carried zero points. Any other questions? Yes, Laura. Yeah, this was probably an anxiety attack for him. But, but in, a, in the larger course of things, had it not been for the larger picture of the role that Paul was going to play in the plan of God, he could have been snuffed out easy in that storm. So, yeah, yeah. Paul had to go through the process. 
and it might have been some hours in prayer while a ship was going like this when the angel came to him. He said, okay, Paul, I've got word for you. No. So, any other questions? Yes. Yeah, that's the going back to history of the, uh, remember when we went through framework number three, the part three, talking about the Davidic dynasty, and here this teenager was, was uh, messiahed, anointed, and it, huh? he didn't get to be king. He was anointed, and he got, uh, there were seven assassination attempts on David. Seven times Saul tried to knock him off. And every time it was thwarted. Because God said, that guy is going to be king of this country. Now that didn't mean David just sat there and let Saul throw a spear. But rather, it was this mysterious working of how God has a sovereign plan in history. Application to, the, to all this tonight is that when you get into this positional business that we're going through, and we're going to talk about imputed righteousness, we're going to talk about the intercession of Christ, we're going to talk about death and resurrection. All that has to do with our position in the plan of God. That position is where you have to work from. Because if you're weak and don't understand your position in Christ, you'll be vulnerable to these things. But once you understand where we are in Christ, and that this is God's eternal plan, and because we're inside an eternal plan, he that keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Because you, we, we're aware of our connection with the plan. It's not that we're so great. It's the plan that's great, and we're part of the plan. Okay, well, I guess our time is up. People look tired. So, we'll see you next week.